Well, my name is Josh Watson. I'm the adult education pastor here at Whitestone. And one of the many things that I enjoy about serving here is being able to, now and then, uh, lead a trip to Israel. And for many reasons. Um, first, getting to leave Wisconsin in the month of January. It's always a highlight. Uh, being able to go with friends from our family here at Whitestone. Uh, but also, you know, of course, the sights we get to see from the Old Testament, like where David fought Goliath, or um, where Elijah called down fire from heaven, where Abraham offered Isaac, and sights from the New Testament, like where Jesus fed the 5,000, where he walked on water, uh, where he died and rose again. But best of all, it's those sights and experiences that then help when reading the Bible and bringing it more to life. But there's still a number of spots in Israel that I have not been able to visit and probably never will. One of them uh, is Mount Sinai. It's not on your normal Israel tour package. Uh, it's quite a bit removed from everything else. And in fact, there's lots of disagreement as to where exactly Mount Sinai is located. Uh, the traditional spot is in Sinai Peninsula, but there's a lot of people who think, uh, no, the actual spot is in Saudi Arabia on the mountains uh, there. And those are two very different locations separated by about 80 miles. Um, but wherever it is exactly, the story that happens at Mount Sinai is fascinating. It's unlike anything else in scripture. It is amazing. I mean, here you have the official start of a nation, the nation of Israel. You have God himself speaking with his own voice to that entire nation. You have the giving of a law, the Ten Commandments that still exist today, still is followed today. It was a very, very unique event. And it's estimated that it, it was a little over two million people that had left Egypt and come here to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 12, 37, it says that there were 600,000 men. So then you add the, the women and the children, maybe the elderly, and you easily come to over 2 million. And it's believed that they all reached Mount Sinai about 45 days after they left Egypt. And this is where the story in Exodus 19 and 20 takes place. And that's what I want to look at. So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Exodus 19. And that's the main part of where our, we'll be... Uh, looking at this morning in Exodus 19 and 20 and I'll be reading here from Exodus 19 verse 12 and then 16 through 20 and this is in, in preparation for, for what God is going to speak from Mount Sinai starting in verse 12 it says and you shall set limits for the people all around saying take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him 
in thunder. Now, I don't usually like to do this sort of thing, but just for a moment, close your eyes. Close your eyes and picture yourself in this situation which I'm about to describe. You're standing in front of an imposing mountain, and there's a boundary around it, and a warning of death if you cross. And suddenly, loud cracks of thunder, lots of lightning flashes, a thick cloud covers the mountain, a loud trumpet blasts, columns of smoke are going up, God descends in a raging fire, then a violent earthquake, and then that trumpet gets louder and louder, and then you hear the voice of God himself. Okay, go ahead and open your eyes. Now, I'm sure it's not hard to imagine why the Israelites were literally scared out of their mind at this point. It says in the next chapter that the Israelites said to Moses, you speak to us because if God speaks, we'll all die. And that was good because God had a message for them that was very important, one that he wanted them to always remember. Never before or since in Scripture had God spoken to an entire nation like this. Never before or since had God written down his commands with his own finger. I don't know if you realized or knew this, in Exodus 31, 18, it says, and he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And in Deuteronomy 4, 13, so he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. He wrote them. So you can see why this is unlike any other event or story in the Bible. And I'm sure you can imagine how important it was what God was about to say to the Israelites. I mean, just by comparison, you open the Bible to the very first page, very first verse, what does it tell us? That God created everything. Now, how important has that been for God's followers? I mean, incredibly important. That's the foundation of everything. And so here we are now at Mount Sinai. Any idea what the first words God spoke were? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or it's believers in the church today. God's message to us is this. I am the Lord your God. Stop putting other things before me. When you look at the Bible as a whole, there's probably no other sin talked about more than the sin of idolatry. How evil it is, how prevalent it is, how much it offends God, and how much it ruins our lives. Throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, it is a great evil. And the Bible was written, you know, more for us to read, more than those who were at Mount Sinai on that day. 
It's for us who have lived after. And that's exactly what it says, Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. In 1 Corinthians 10, 7 and 11, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So it's talking to us in America, in Wisconsin, in 2017. We are supposed to learn from their mistakes, and idolatry was a very big mistake. So let me try to define as simply as I can what idolatry is. Back then, idolatry was simply something inanimate which they believed could bring them a better life in some way, which they gave their attention to. And it's basically the same thing for us today. It's usually something inanimate that we give such attention to and focus on, which we think will in some way give us a better life. I mean, ask yourself, what do you wish you had just a little more of? So to make your life a little better. What do you give a whole lot of time to doing? What do you easily spend a lot of money on? What do you give a lot of priority to in your life? And what do you invest a lot of emotion into? If you answer these questions honestly, it will likely reveal what might be a false god in your life. And there are many possible idols that we could set up. It just depends on what each of us chooses to value. But I just want to quickly look at three common ones. Three common ones, and hopefully this will make it a little bit easier to apply because I think that these very likely affect a high percentage of us. Number one, sports. This is easily one of the biggest idols in America. The NFL, the NBA, Major League, together bring in over $25 billion every year in revenue. You add college football to that, it's now well over $30 billion. And that's not even talking about kids' sports or high school sports. And it's no different here in Wisconsin. For example, the Packers. I mean, just hearing the word Packers, for some of us, you know, it immediately, you feel proud, you get excited, you're interested, your ears go up, what's he gonna say? Better not say anything negative. You know, what does he know? He's a Dolphins fan. True. But does just hearing the name of Jesus have the same effect? Does that stir up interest, excitement? Do you feel energized just by the name? Or what if you hear someone you know and they're, you overhear them ripping on the Packers saying they're completely worthless? What would you most likely say in that situation? But would you also speak up if you overheard someone saying that following or believing in God was a waste of time? Or 
if you went to Lambeau Field this fall, would you make sure that everyone there knew that you identified with Christ by wearing a Christian shirt? Which I'm not saying you should, but isn't it, don't you find it at least a little strange that, you know, comes fall, we come to church and we make sure everyone knows we identify with the Packers? Now, I'm not saying that any of these things are wrong in themselves. They're not. Nor are you a good Christian just because this doesn't describe you. There's nothing wrong with being a sports fan. There's nothing wrong with cheering on your team. I believe God gave us sports as something to enjoy. It's just a matter of how important it is to you. And that's something only you can answer. How important is watching the game? And how important is spending time with God? And we compare them, that usually reveals where our heart is. And that's what it is. It's all a matter of the heart. And let me say that this is something I myself definitely have to be careful of. Because I have to constantly ask myself these same questions to make sure that sports isn't an idol in my own life. I grew up on sports as a fan. Uh, the Seminoles, the Dodgers... The Dolphins, back when they actually were good. Um, you know, all of them still favorite teams of mine. In fact, football, basketball, baseball, track, that was high school for me. So I definitely understand it. And these are questions that I have to ask myself as well. And I just encourage you as well to ask, how much time do you give to sports? How much money do you give? How much priority does it take in your life? How much emotion do you invest? Once you answer those questions, then ask the same questions about your relationship with God. How much time do you give to God? How much money do you give to Him and to those in need? What priority does God take in your life? And how much passion exists in your worship or in your beliefs. And the bottom line in all this is that God can satisfy us and will satisfy us so much more than sports ever will or anything. But not as long as we're giving to sports what we should be giving to God. And plus... God gives us eternal rewards, as it says in 1 Corinthians 9.25. When we run the race for him, we receive an eternal prize. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. We don't lose it. So that's one common American idol that creeps up is sports. The second one is security or wanting to feel secure. And nothing usually gives us that sense of being or feeling secure as much as money. And so we're always on the lookout for how we can just add a little bit more money to the income. You know, whether it's a pay raise, or a side job, or a home business, or cutting coupons. I did that as a kid for my mom. And obviously, these are not at all bad things. In fact, sometimes this is very wise, very wise to do, or absolutely necessary, or a good idea. 
So please don't misunderstand. Again, it all comes down to the heart. That is, how much worry in your life is in some way related to money? Or how much are you focused on being just a little bit more financially secure? That's the question that will often reveal a lot and reveal whether or not it's you know, slowly becoming an idol. Look what it says in 1 Timothy 6.17. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. It's, it's amazing that when you read that verse, it's not saying the uncertainty of only having enough to get by. It's saying the uncertainty of riches. So even when you have a lot of money, it's a false sense of security. Just look at the examples of Job and the rich fool in Scripture. Job lost all his wealth in a single day. The rich fool lost his life just as suddenly. Money never gives us a true sense of security. Instead, we are told to put our hope in God. That's what the rest of 1 Timothy 6.17 says. He's the actual one providing for us. But put your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's the provider. So that's a second possible idol. Sports, security, and then third, one last one I want to mention is the God of success or accomplishment. Again, our American culture this has always been something that we have been proud of. We're proud of getting things done. You know, which is good. It's good to be hardworking. It's good to set goals. But just like most idols that we set up, what starts off as good eventually becomes an idol. And it can be something small. It can be something so small as the daily checklist, the to-do list. You know, we start off the day thinking, you know what? This is what I want to get done today. Before you know it, you're ignoring people at work and cutting people off the road and yelling at the dryer and everybody else in the room. And we turn into this crazy person because we're not able to get what we wanted to accomplished. And it's at that point, it's starting to become an idol that we worship because we never asked God what he wants us to do or we never asked him for the help in doing what we've set out to do, or we've never considered that he is in control and that all these things are happening for a reason and for our good. Ultimately, to accomplish things and to be successful in any sense, it's entirely up to God anyway. I mean, look at just two examples, Joshua in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. You look at Joshua 1.8, it says, but you shall meditate Referring to God's word. Meditate on God's word day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. You give yourself to God. He will make your way prosperous and successful. 1 Corinthians 15.10. On the contrary, Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And you look at the, 
the two of them, what did they accomplish? Well, Joshua led all the Israelites into the promised land, conquered the land, and then settled it for them. And they're still there today. Look at Paul. He wrote more books of the, in the Bible than anyone else and as a result likely led more to Christ than anybody else has ever. But this is a common idol in our culture, the idol of success or accomplishment. And like we said, it can be seen as simply as how obsessed we are with the daily checklist. It can also be seen, actually, in how proud we are of what we do get accomplished or in how many characters we can fit into a hashtag. But ask yourself, what are your goals in life? And do they have any value in light of eternity? And that's only something you can ask and examine yourself with and answer those questions. Or ask God and let him answer. But it all comes down to those words that God spoke at Mount Sinai. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And it's so important to realize that God gave us this command for our good. It's not to hinder us or to make life difficult. It's for our good he's telling us this. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 10.13. Keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. God wants you to experience the abundant life, as Mark was talking about last week. He wants you to experience that. But the abundant life can only happen when he gets our full attention, when he is the focus. Now, I don't want to end on a, on a negative note or on the false idols that we set up. So let me just offer one practical way that we can make sure that we are making the Lord uh, God of our life. I want to look at Joshua 24 verses 14 and 15. This is a pretty familiar passage for most of you. This is where Joshua tells the Israelites to make a decision on who is going to be their God. And this is what he says. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So clearly, a great way to determine who or what is God to you is based on who or what you serve. What you give your time to and your hands to doing reflects what you value or think about most. And when Jesus came to this earth, he gave the perfect example. In Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there are so many opportunities and ways to serve God from your heart. I mean, there's your family, your job, different ministries, the poor, I mean, there are many opportunities to serve God. In fact, right here, right here at Whitestone, there are many opportunities to serve him. Not just opportunities, 
but needs. I mean, we have Sunday school, childcare, ushers, cafe, greeters, meals ministry, VBS, family promise, helping people move. The more of us that serve, the more effective this body will be for God's kingdom. But it all starts with making sure that there are no other gods in our life. It was the first of the Ten Commandments. It was the first thing that God spoke to all of Israel. And it was the first thing that he wrote down. God himself. It's extremely important for the Israelites at Mount Sinai and for us. Because God has something better in store for us. A better life if we serve him. Joy. True inner joy. Peace. Fulfillment, purpose, hope, all this God is ready to give and wants to give this abundant life. And at the same time, you'll be storing up eternal treasures that are waiting for you in heaven. Just as I said, as we looked in 1 Corinthians 9.25, that we will soon re receive an eternal prize. Let's pray. Almighty God, Lord, we, we want to, as your creation, as your children, acknowledge that, Lord, you have made it entirely clear to us from creation itself, from your word, that you are the one true God and that only you can fill us with what we truly desire, what we are actually seeking at the innermost part of ourselves. You are the one who made us, and therefore you know how we were created to function and to thrive. And that is when we put our attention on you. We fulfill what you designed us for. And so I pray, Lord, that through your word that we looked at this morning and through your spirit that you've given to us who follow you, that you would reveal to us if there are any idols we have set up, gods that we are chasing, and that we would make you instead the center and know that we will give glory to you, but we will also begin to live the abundant life you desire for us. Lord, we thank you for your word and for this time and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.